You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 37. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year to you fans of the Gregorian calendar. My name is Jeff Steffen, and welcome to another edition of the CSP Podcast. This is the podcast where everything related to the study and practice of speech pathology is discussed, and no stone is left unturned. Well, at least the stones I can see. So, it's been three years now since I launched the show, and so far... I've covered issues in autism, AAC, dysphagia, and more. In the year ahead, my hope is to continue to bring you, the listener, an eclectic mix of hard clinical topics and hopefully a good dose of lighthearted humor now and then. Today on the show, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Brian Goldstein, who is the Provost slash Vice President for Academic Affairs at LaSalle University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Brian, of course, is also a professor in communication sciences and disorders, and formerly was the department chair at Temple University's CSD department, also in Philadelphia. Most of you, I'm sure, are very aware of Brian's extensive research in bilingualism, and that is what we are talking about here today. Brian has published many papers on Spanish phonological development and has co-authored the book Multilingual Aspects of Speech Sound Disorders in Children with Sharon McLeod. Today, I talk with the ASHA Fellow about all things bilingualism, including the growing interest in research, the challenges SLPs face in daily practice, and defining what a bilingual is in the first place. I love doing this podcast because it forces me to go into areas that either I've neglected or that I just haven't um, paid enough attention to. Bilingual issues. I, I emailed you this. I think I felt like a rank amateur, and I did do a little bit of research coming into this. Um, I've read I've read your works here and there over the years. I, to me, you are the guru on bilingualism in our field. So, Thank you. I think that's too much credit, but I think <laughs> I, I think we now have a number of them, which is one of the most satisfying changes I've seen in the time I've been doing this. Is how many people have gotten interested in this, and and importantly, from a variety of domains. You know, it's not just oh, let's let's focus on morphosyntax or, or semantics, but, you know, across the, you know, all the domains, we now have folks who are working in, in bilingualism in our area of speech language pathology. And I think that's, that's real valuable. Yeah. yeah. I, is, I'm just curious, and now you were mentioning all domains, do people study stuttering in bilingualism? Just yeah, there, there there have been. So uh, Nan Bernstein Ratner at the University of Maryland mm-hmm. um, has has gotten interested in it. She's had a number of students who've, who've done investigations into stuttering. Jennifer Watson, who is at Texas Christian, that is her area of, of expertise. Those are probably the, the, the folks who have done the most in, in stuttering. Then there's also uh, Courtney Bird at the University of Texas at Austin. So she and Liz Pena and Lisa Bedore um, have done some stuff. I mean, Liz and Lisa are phenomenal because they've got papers, uh, you know, not only in their, their area of syntax and semantics and, and narratives, but also in audiology and stuttering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they span a pretty wide gamut. 
Okay. And so, yeah. Um, now, just to, from a historical perspective, you know, I came up in the, uh, with my master's in the late 90s. It, it seemed back then, um, at least I don't remember receiving any specific, there certainly wasn't a course to, uh, designated towards bilingualism. And I'm not sure how much we even spoke about it back then, but in the 90s, there really wasn't much research. Am I correct in terms of bilingual uh, speech and language development? I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think if, if you look historically, what's happened is that most folks were, were if, if they were doing something that, that wasn't in sort of mainstream American English, obviously there was, a, uh, you know, a, a lot of work in, in African American English. So if there was work in a non-English language, a, a lot of it tended to, to try to trend towards really looking at monolinguals in a language other than English. And I think in part, People just did not and weren't ready, uh, I think, conceptually, philosophically, or methodologically to, to deal with children who were growing up bilingual or, or multilingual. Um, and, and so, I mean, even in my own career, I really tried to, to focus on more of the, the Spanish monolingual population because, again, we, we just needed a foundation to, to know what was going on within that other language from uh, an acquisition and development and then morphing into disorders in one language as opposed to, okay, now we're, we're layering a second language on, on top of it. And so, you know, I would say it probably really wasn't until uh, 15, maybe 20 years ago, but really in the last 15 years uh, that folks in pathology really focused heavily on bilingual kids. Well, it seems that one of the first things that needed to be done is just to lay a foundation of just normative data. Oh, I think that's absolutely correct. And and that's where I started. So the first project, if you will, that, that I did in, in Spanish, and as, as you know, my area is, my specific area is speech sound disorders. Mm -hmm. Now, do you and speak Spanish? I'm just curious. I do. I do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't use it obviously very much uh, at this point. And so... Sometimes I will be sitting in my car listening to somebody speaking and suddenly I'll just start translating in my head <laughs> just yeah. to try and keep up with it. My kids have taken Spanish. I speak a little bit to, to them, mm -hmm. uh, but obviously I don't use it actively on, on a regular basis at, at this point. So anyway, yeah. so my, my first project and my first master's class was to, to really do a content analysis of the available phonological assessments in, in, uh, they're available for Spanish speakers just to look at, at the lay of the land, uh, but before even thinking about how do we assess uh, these kids or what is it that we know about their speech and language development. And, and so you're absolutely right. We, we all started with that foundational knowledge. What do we know about typical development? Then what is, if you will, normative uh, about disorders? And then I think being more nuanced um, and specific the topics, domains, and areas that, that we're looking at related to bilinguals. Yeah, and I think one of your one of your great contributions has not only been talking about normative data, but also talking, walking us through the assessment process and how, you know, I you know first when I was looking at your work, I thought how messy it is, but I don't think messy. It just it's not messy. It's just it's a little more investigation. It's a process, and um, you know, for instance, you you talked about before how we need to be aware of uh, both languages, their unique syllable structures, the, uh, the phonetics involved. 
Um, you know, for instance, I, you've talked about final consonant deletion, how in English, for instance, we see that as a big deal, but in Spanish, it's almost a non-starter because I don't know if there are, uh, there's very few um, final consonants uh, in the Spanish language. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to address both of those. I'll, I'll start with the, the second one first, you yeah. know, in terms specifically final consonants. And so in Spanish, there are only five word final. Now, there's more syllable final, but five word final consonants. And in, in Caribbean dialects and, you know, dialects that are more coastal than, than inland, um, at least three of the five can be deleted as a normal part of, of the dialect. So, you know, in, in the, the population I've studied the most, which is Puerto Rican speakers, there's really only two word final consonants that are more or less obligatory. And I would imagine over time, those will be weakened and, and deleted as well. And so final consonant deletion just is not going to be an issue for Spanish speakers, even bilingual Spanish speakers. So you, you'll see a marked difference between final consonant deletion of Spanish-English bilinguals in their English versus in their Spanish. And so, you know, that's, that's part evidence that kids at a very young age are keeping these languages separate. They know what belongs to English. They know what belongs to, to, to Spanish. Yeah. It, and, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and just to touch on your point about assessment, is that you're, you're right. I, I think we have to recognize that assessment for bilinguals or multilinguals is more complex than it is for monolinguals, because whatever we would, would have done or would do for a monolingual speaker, we need to repeat that for a bilingual speaker. Now, there, there are two more generalizations to, to make about that. One is we should not, however, forget everything we know about good assessment and, by extension, intervention. And I think that's what happens sometimes, is that clinicians, particularly for those who are new into assessing and treating bilinguals um, or um, maybe know one language and so they're, they're monolingual and they're, ha they're having to now deal with bilinguals, is that they tend to jettison everything they've learned about best or better practices in assessment and intervention and forget how to apply those uh, better or best techniques or approaches with bilinguals. Now, I think what makes it complex is that if you are going to validly and reliably assess bilinguals, we have to find some way to put the two languages together again. That is, bilinguals are not two monolinguals in one. So you can't simply test English on, on day one and two days later test their, their Cantonese and say, all right, I'm, I'm now going to look at their, the, the English of these bilingual kids and compare it to a monolingual, and then I'll look at their Cantonese and compare that information to, to the monolingual mm. in, in Cantonese. We have to find a way to put those together. And that, that it's a it's a very tricky thing because uh, I, you know the one I've learned so much in, in <laughs> the time that I've I've done my little uh, research and just but I, I think the the issue is you talk about when we have the, a very authentic assessment is this idea of even what bilingualism is you know it, it's it's a messy proposition because you can have uh, a kid maybe who's and I've I've seen so many situations over the years uh, someone who say um, comes from, I remember about five years ago, worked with a little girl, uh, an early intervention who uh, was exposed to Greek and English. And 75% of the time it was English, only 25% of the time it was Greek because she had a grandmother who watched her part of the time. 
Right. And, you know, the question is, how do you make sense of that versus someone who might be more 50-50 versus 75-25? Maybe you can speak to that. Sure. So I'll say a couple of things. And and so, I mean, this was a question that I would ask in in my bilingual or multicultural class uh, every single year. You know, I would start out with with asking them, what what is bilingualism? And and so you would think in some ways it's a very simple question to answer. But when you start trying to answer it, you realize how complex it is to simply define that word. So often, you know, students um, and and even uh, clinicians who who are new to the area will say something like, the ability to read, write, speak, and understand in, in more than one language. And, and so I will then dig deeper and I will say, define ability. And they will say, well, you have to carry on a conversation. And then I'd say, with whom? In what context? And so as you, as you peel back the layers of the onion to try to define that word, um, I, I think in some ways it serves as an impediment to doing assessment and intervention then might be different than if the child is monolingual. And so in, in one of my classes one year, this is when I was still at, at Temple, uh, a student raised her hand and, and said, when I asked what is bilingualism, she said, someone who's not monolingual. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. That was exactly my, my reaction too, was, was to sort of chuckle and, and say, that might be the most profound definition of bilingualism that I've ever heard. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and the reason I like it, it so much um, is that what it says is if someone is either hearing and or using more than one language, then we need to entertain the notion that the way we assess them in treatment and treat them is going to be different than if they were monolingual. Oh. And, and I sort of like that mentality of, of it, it's almost definition by exclusionary criteria. So even even though there's some research by uh, Barbara Pearson, her colleagues, that a child needs to have at least 25% input uh, in both languages to get that receptive foundation uh, Mm -hmm. in order to uh, be able to develop native-like or or adult-like competency. That that number's a little um, squishy. Uh, research-wise, we, 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 I, I think we, and, and Barbara has, Pearson has said that herself. Um, and so we keep reifying it as, as if it is an absolute reality when in fact it's, it's more of a, I, I think a marker to, to pay attention to. Um, you know, there, there's other definitions. Uh, if you want one that's more contextual environmental, Kathy Conert has said uh, a bilingual is, a bilingual is someone who has the past, present, or future need to hear and or use more than one language. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, and 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 what I like about that is it, it gives it a socio-pragmatic, a socio-cultural flavor to it than trying to say, uh, you know, put a specific uh, benchmark in terms of percent input or percent output. Yeah, well, it is a continuum. That's what it sounds like. It's a continuum yes, and, yes. and context-specific. So. Exactly, and and couple of psychologists named Valdez and Figueroa said this about 30 years ago now that bilingualism is is not an absolute condition it's a relative condition and so earlier we were talking about how how the complexity of bilinguals is increased compared to monolinguals and and I think one of the the findings that we're seeing 
over time, and this is with you know all the work that so many researchers have done both inside and, and outside our field, is that different domains seem to work differently, right? So mm-hmm. you know it's not as if you are um, more proficient in Cantonese than all of your domains are, are going to be more proficient in Cantonese uh, than they are in, in English. So you know you can you can it's not a continuum, but I see it as a series of continua where we have to, again, look differentially at, you know, those five areas, syntax, semantics, phonology, the lexicon, and pragmatics, that they all aren't working exactly the same way in exactly the same timetable. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's fascinating to me, and you look at the different domains that and you've written about the developments, and I think you just recently published a paper on uh, development of phonology. Yes. Right. What, was it, what were your findings of that, if you can tell the audience? So I, I guess I, I would summarize it, um, and, and I think actually a lot of the literature uh, in bilingualism is you know you know works similarly in that you know bi- bilingualism is not terribly different than monolingualism in each language. So that is, if if you look at not a a point in time or a point on the continuum, but but if you look at development as uh, a, a range. Uh, and, and that range is something we call within normal limits or, or typical development, that bilinguals in each of their languages, again, whether you're talking about syntax, semantics, uh, and, and even phonology that you just mentioned uh, in, in, in your question, um, the, the bilingual kids are going to follow that same basic trajectory and timetable. If not, you'd have to ask the question, how is it that bilinguals can acquire two languages in the same time that monolinguals can acquire one? You know, I, as you were saying that, it, I, I'm going back to um, the first CEU uh, course that I attended, seminar live, I think it was a, it was a live talk, this is in the early 2000s on bilingualism, was someone who spoke about Bix and Kelp. Right. So they was a basic inter interpersonal communication skills and, and then the academic academic language proficiency. Right. Is that now does that framework still hold up today? I, I would say that that the answer is is yes and no. Um, it it holds up in the sense that in, in the early vestiges in the in the early throes of of acquisition, uh, whether whether kids are, are acquiring the languages simultaneously or as, as a second language. And that's really where Bix and Kalp grew up was, was from an educational or educational psychology framework mm-hmm. for uh, school-age children who were learning English after they already had a foundation in the first language. So we're talking kids who up until, let's say, three, four, five, or even six years old had a foundation in, in their L1 or first language, their, that is their non-English language, and then started to acquire English. And so... Um, what what the uh, author of of that those terms uh, Jim Cummins found was that kids very or relatively quickly could seem to acquire those BICs or basic communication skills in English fairly rapidly, and he put a timetable of about two or three years to acquire those skills. Again, with the assumption that uh, the kids had time and opportunity to hear and and use uh, English, but that it took somewhere between five and seven years to acquire that cognitive academic language that they need to do well, succeed, um, and prosper in academics using English. So we in speech pathology 
sort of took those notions and started applying it to, to the kids that we were seeing. I think what I've seen, unfortunately, is that uh, some parents, some uh, other professionals, some speech pathologists, some school districts have taken Bix and Kalp to their illogical extreme. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I have, I have heard uh, doing presentations from around the country that a school district will say, well, you can't identify, you can't evaluate a child um, until after two to three years because that's how long it takes them to acquire those basic interpersonal communication skills. Or they will say, you really can't uh, evaluate a child until they're sort of in the middle of that, that CALP stage. Mm, and, really? Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's exactly um, my sentiment. And, and often I have a very troubled facial expression when, <laughs> when I hear this from, from clinicians. Um, because, again, I, I think what they've done is, is taken a concept that, that has validity um, and, and taken it to a level for which it was not intended and, more importantly, for which we have um, absolutely no research to say, don't start doing assessment or evaluation um, until kids get past that that two or three years. And in fact, there's some great research by uh, Joanne Paradis, um, who is a linguist at the University of Alberta, who has found that after less than two years of exposure to English, children who are learning English as a second language are within, uh, the majority are, are age appropriate in terms of their syntax uh, and story grammar and morphology um, in, in less than, than two years. So this notion that we need to be waiting two and three years just doesn't seem supported by the evidence. Well, a couple things are, one is that it doesn't account for so much individual variation. That's one thing. But the other, I, I guess the other question I have for that is, who is that attitude, would that where is that? Is that coming more from an administration? Is that coming? I can't imagine that would be coming from ELL teachers themselves, would it? So I, I think you're absolutely right about the individual variation. So I'll speak to, to that first yeah. is that, sure, you know, we, we know, you know from, from good psychometrics and from you know, psychometric theory that group data always obscure individual differences. And I'll just give you one example. And if we want to pursue this more, we can or, or move on. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was looking at, at some work recently where um, a former colleague of mine, Achilles Iglesias, and his former doctoral student, Raul Rojas, who's now at UT Dallas, were looking at um, word learning by narratives in children in kindergarten, first and second grade. And so th- these were uh, starting out basically kind of monolingual Spanish speakers, and, and the range of the number of words they used in a narrative recall task was anywhere between four and almost, I'd say about 130 or 135. And these are typically developing, you know, n- no issues whatsoever. So the range is huge, even if you just look at something like vocabulary use in, in a narrative mm-hmm. task. You know, in terms of where this notion is coming, um, I I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I do think some of it is coming from uh, supervisors and districts who are trying to uh, apply theory, research, and policy to to all students. Um, I think it probably stems from a lack of depth of knowledge um, of the field and and of the students that that are being served. Um, And and I think some of it is, is policy decisions, again, that have to be implemented across an entire school district. Yeah. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and tell you about another interesting finding, something that I didn't know before uh, 
you know, doing more research on bilingualism. Okay. My, I had an erroneous assumption that working in Spanish or working in phonology in one language would have an impact on the other. And that's just not so. That there is some uh, low-level uh, relationship between two languages, but you know, uh, someone who has an L in one, in say, in Spanish, may not necessarily have an L in English. Right. So I, you know, I think when it comes to intervention approaches, we're only at the very uh, foray, at very nascent stage of of understanding precisely how intervention works in in bilinguals. Um, you know, I, I think there's, again, some support for taking a bilingual approach um, that, that is somehow working, if you will, both languages that does seem to have a positive uh, effect on, on each of the two languages. And, and th- there, there's also foundational research to, to, to show that. So if you look at literacy, for example, um, there, there's some pretty strong research that, that shows that, and this is a lot. Uh, a lot of that work is with Spanish English uh, bilingual speakers. So that that if you that literacy skills in the L1, so in the language, in 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 the case being Spanish, has a, a, a significant positive effect on literacy learning skills in in English. And so it's it's not the case that um, one has to to disadvantage the home language to work on skills in the other language. And so, you know, you mentioned phonology specifically. So uh, a single subject case design that Christina Gildersleeve Newman, who's at Portland State and I did, you know, has has seemed to to provide at least some early evidence that, you know, working in one language, and we mostly work with uh, these two children in, in Spanish, did have a positive effect on their English, even though English wasn't the focus of, of the therapy. Right. Now, the, the question is why and in, and, and in what circumstances? And I think that's really the, the next layer of, of research. And so, you know, I've, I've had a, uh, and, and not the only one, but have, have talked for a while about, look, if, if you want to build a bilingual, start with those areas that are common to, to both of those languages. And you don't necessarily have to intervene in both languages. So, for example, uh, English has an L, Spanish has an L. If, if those are both impaired in a Spanish-English bilingual, if you work on them, even in English, does it have a positive effect on, on L in, in Spanish? The jury's out on that. But again, some of the foundational research would indicate that it's, it's likely to. I think the example that you're talking about is that because of the, the structural differences between two languages, right? So Spanish tends to be longer have longer words but less complex syllable structure. English is the reverse. English tends to have shorter words but more complex syllable structure. L in English is not the same as L in Spanish, probably related to word length and syllable structure rather than the production of that sound in and of itself. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And I, yeah. you know, I was thinking even the acoustic features of the sounds that we have in common might uh, play a part in the differences uh, between acquisitions of sound. So, you know, for instance, I think the, uh, we might, we might mistakenly think that the Spanish R, like trill, might have more in common with the English R than we would, that, you know, we would think it has more in common than it actually does and make an assumption that they should be able to get both sounds in both languages. Well, that, that's yeah. exactly right. I think that's a great example because 
there's often an erroneous assumption that the the R sound, right, in the retroflex uh, in, in English somehow is related to both the flap and the trill in Spanish when, in fact, uh, each of those three sounds is a member of three different sound classes. And so, yes, orthographically they look alike, uh, but acoustically and phonetically they are completely different. Mm-hmm. And so we can't generalize uh, across those categories. So, you know, as I was also reading, the question that came up to me, as you're planning an intervention, how does, so this is a big enchilada of a question, but I was thinking to myself, you you want to be sensitive to the phonological processes uh, in various, in, in both languages, you want to make a really, you, you want to go for those uh, commonalities in both languages, but is there is there a, a um a general blueprint, if you will. I mean, how do you, if someone wanted to do the Hudson Cycles approach or take uh, works, you know, say uh, Judith Garrett's work in terms of late developing sounds, how does that fit into all this? So I, I think there is is a way, um, and, and Barbara actually has done some work in, in Spanish and with bilinguals and one of her former students, uh, Raul Presas, has, has done work in, in that area as well. Um, and so... I do think it's absolutely possible to, to utilize those approaches um, and, and put them in the context of, of non-English languages. I think what's important to understand, though, is to, to do that, uh, either the, the clinician or the clinici- clinician's adjunct, whether it's a, a, a bilingual SLP who can serve as a consultant um, or a linguist or someone at a university, um, the, the SLP has to be sure that they understand something uh, about the phonotactic structure of the language, uh, of the non-English language. And so, you know, there, there's so many sources out now that, that have that kind of information. Uh, without it, I think it's going to be hard to, to apply or generalize um, the approaches. And so, you know, if, if you're looking at, at something like at Cycles Approach, um, you know, is you, you can take those, marry them with Mark Fay's uh, goal attack strategy, and I think come up with with a plausible rotation of of processes through cycles. So you know, maybe you um, choose processes that are, and I and I've suggested this in both papers and in, in presentations. So, well, where where do you start, right? Well, what's important is again, don't throw out what you know about good intervention techniques. And, and I think people get get um, bollocked up um, with bilinguals is because they often first ask, in what language should I treat? And the problem is that's the eighth circle of hell. If that's the <laughs> first intervention question you, you ask, I think it is absolutely um, not answerable. The first question is, what should the goal be? And right, and where I'm making an assumption, you've done a comprehensive assessment, um, and and you know you've you've looked at the child's strengths and weaknesses. But what's the goal based on that information that the child uh, needs to to work on? And and again, you, you can apply then approaches that we have in English and see how they could work with with bilinguals. Um, and and so again, cycles, for example, you know, look at those those patterns in each languages that are highly occurring, that operate across a number of different contexts that is word-linked syllable structures. What are those in English? What are those in Spanish? Is there some overlap? 
So, for example, unstressed syllable deletion is likely to be a pattern that is evident, highly evident in both English and in Spanish. And so in, instead of asking, well, which language should I work on? What you want to say is, look, that, that, those, that deletion of unstressed syllables is really causing an impingement in intelligibility. That should be an initial goal because it is impacting intelligibility so much. Now let me figure out what the targets are, what the goal attack strategy is, what the approach is. Now I'm ready to find out or ask the question, in what language should I treat? Okay, so if you have a situation like that where you find an overlap and you, you find a sound class that impacts uh, Spanish and English or any other two languages equally, and then the language, it, or then the, the issue doesn't become about the language itself, but the patterns. Uh, exactly. Is there, is there a preferred, so then, okay, does, is a typical SLP who's applying evidence-based practice, or is there evidence-based practice in terms of what percentage then of language one versus language two in terms of the words that they choose for that does it matter is it just is it just the pattern that makes uh that's most important well i, I don't know I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the most important I, th- I think it's one piece information to to look at and so you know if in the in the case of phonology if, if you're doing a comprehensive um, assessment and then a comprehensive analysis. And, and I'll, I'll kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent here before circling back to, uh-huh. to say that I, I think the, we spend a lot of time talking about valid assessment and, and we should spend a lot of time talking about valid assessment. But my sense over time is that it, it's really not how we get the information out of the kid. It's what we do with it once we have that information. And so it's not just do we or not use standardized tests. It's what kind of broad and deep analysis and set of analyses do we do with that information? And so from the perspective of phonology, we really ought to be doing a, a deep, independent, um, and relational analysis um, on sounds, patterns, phonotactic structures um, in each of the two languages. And then you look at what the child is doing in English, you look at what they're doing in that other language, and within all of those areas, look for overlap. So, for example, you know, if the child is deleting unstressed syllables, um, mostly in three-syllable words in both languages, there's your entree to intervention. You've got your goal, you've got your target, then, then you go on from there, right? So, the analysis is is directing you. It's leading you to what the intervention goal and and targets ought to be, as opposed to is it English, is it Spanish, is it Cantonese, is it is it Swahili? And we can look at that kind of information in a number of different domains. So it's not just phonological patterns. It's also uh, production of sound classes. It's also word length. It's syllable structure. Um, etc. And then you can apply a variety of approaches once you have that deep set analyses. Yeah, and and it sounds like you really, especially with especially with bilinguals, but probably with monolinguals too. You just it can't just be about initial, medial, final positions. Right. Exactly. And and I'm glad you mentioned that. Is again, I, I would argue that the kind of analyses that that we're talking about here, and the kind of assessment and and even intervention approach generalizes over all kinds of kids, not just bilinguals, but, but monolinguals as, as well. And, and so, you know, initial, 
I don't know that I would ever do initial veto final, but you know, whether it's, I think, syllable initial, syllable final, again, looking at different structures, looking at different word links is, is valuable no matter how many languages the child is speaking. Yeah. Now, I wanted to shift a little bit again. I know we're coming up here. I'm looking at my timer. Yeah. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I wanted to uh, selfishly ask you, well, uh, two, two other questions. So um, one is when I was first applying to the schools, so this is back uh, six and a half years ago, um, I was, you know, that we have a, I don't know if you're familiar, how familiar you are with the Chicago suburbs here, but there's a town called Skokie. Yes, I know of it. You know of Skokie, North I Suburbs. Do. And one of the schools I applied to, Skokie is a very, is a very large melting pot. Uh, has been, but probably more so these days. And I remember when I was applying to one school district, they told me that um, they gave me kind of a quick uh, fact sheet, I think. Where did I see this online? Anyway, they proudly boast that, you know, this one district, they had 50 languages, over 50 languages represented in a single district. And when I was applying to this uh, this position, I thought to myself, how in the world can you say, can someone manage that? Can they find translators can they find uh they draw on people for every language under the sun i mean if you're an slp in that situation what uh and you don't have access what do you do yeah so i mean th- th- this is a common issue uh across the country i and and i think what what's changed is the the areas of the country that that are dealing with bilingual populations so you know it's not just chicago or new york or texas or florida or california um when when i first went to, to, to St. Louis to, to work at St. Louis University, um, I, I was doing uh, presentations in Iowa, Arkansas, Nebraska, um, even very southern Illinois. So I, I used to uh, consult with uh, Migrant Head Start down in Cobden, um, mm-hmm. which, which was a real treat and honor. Um, and so th- these were districts that were not used to, to dealing with an, an influx of, of non-English speakers. And so Again, I think what, what's changed is, is where there are uh, speakers uh, of more than one language and, and how many there, there are. And so, you know, the, the way that, that, I, that I tend to respond to this is that it is, it, we're never going to have 50 SLPs who, who could speak all of the languages of, of kids in, in a district. Um, we're, we're never going to have... Uh, full-time, you know, interpreters and translators of, of every single language with, within a district. What it means then is that those trying to serve students in that district need to come together and figure out an institutional response to the increase in the number and type of languages in, in one district. And so whether it means uh, a diagnostic center, um, uh, partnering with a university, having on call uh, an interpreter or a set of interpreters and translators, uh, cultural brokers who can help the district navigate through this, then that's, that's what's needed. Um, be, because to your point, it, it would be impossible for, for you um, as, as, a, as a clinician, whether you're new or experienced, uh, to, to be able to provide services in Every single language in in the school district, but again, I think if if we're if we're starting to apply valid, better, best practices in assessment and intervention, I think there is a way to to overcome that. But at the end of the day, it, it is going to be impossible to assess, if not provide intervention to bilingual kids 
in English only. Um, and and I'll, I'll circle back to an example that, that you gave. So if our goal is to build a tip, uh, you know, a, a language learner, a bilingual language learner who ultimately is within normal limits in their understanding and, and use of language, then how can we not provide services in both of those languages, right? So yeah. again, just to come back to your phonology example, you know, you, you mentioned those three sounds, the R sound in English, the flap in, in trill in Spanish. You can't work on the flap and the trill in English. Well, you can the flap to an extent, but it's not, it's not phonemic, it's phonetic. You can't work on the trill in English. So if we're trying to build a within normal limits bilingual speaker, at some point we have to work on trill in Spanish. There is no other choice. We have to work on the R sound, the vocalic, uh, the retroflex R sound in English because it doesn't exist in Spanish. Now, what does an SLP do if they're trying to work on the trill R, but they have a difficulty having difficulty modeling it themselves? Then they, they shouldn't be working on it. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, right. I mean, we, we, we have to be able to model what it is that we want our, our, our students to, to be working on. And so, you know, if they can't uh, produce a trill or they can't produce a voiceless feel or fricative, then th- those are sounds that, that they should be working on. Um, again, I do think it's possible in the absence of any other resources is to, to look at what's common across the two languages. Even if you're working, even if the, the language of intervention is English, you work on unstressed syllable deletion in English, you look at the effect that it's having on, on Spanish. And so what you hope is in time, either um, those sounds that are not in one language or the other resolve, and sometimes that does happen, or again, we're going to have to bring in resources to help the SLP provide models and do intervention in a language that they don't speak. Again, what I realize is this is an institutional issue, not really a speech-language pathology or even an ASHA issue. We yeah. can be part of, of the solution, but we're not the solution ourselves. Well, we also just, like any problem in life, you have to be creative. Right, exactly. And and I think educate um, our, our supervisors and and those who are who can help to change the institutional uh, framework to, to say that we need to be doing something different. What the, you know, what we've been doing in the past just is, is not valid. Yeah. You know, okay. So I wanted to ask you, I'm going to shift again here. Um, looking at my list of questions. And, uh, one of the things that comes up a lot is this tension between SLPs and ELL teachers, um, turf wars in terms of, I'm just curious what your, what your experience has been in this, uh, I won't say too much about this um, in terms of my own experience. I, I don't really deal in that so much. But in, my, in my district, um, I work with a population, kids with moderate to severe disabilities. But um, I've heard other little you know, tensions from now and then. And I'm sure this is common across the country. My, my understanding it is it, that it is uh, common across the country. And in fact... Back in the day, in, in sort of the mid-90s, when I was on the Multicultural Issues Board, I, I was part of a group that, that crafted a position paper that, that came out from ASHA titled, uh, the, the role, uh, um, paraphrasing here, the, the role of the SLP in providing English as a second language services. And the, the bottom line of that position paper was, don't do it. You, you're not the ESL instructor. 
unless you are certified to do so. If, if you have a certification in English as a second language, then by all means, you can operate in, in that domain. But otherwise, as, as speech-language pathologists, we need to stay within our line, stay within our lane. We also need to educate others as to what that lane is. That is, we need to be sure we understand what our scope of practice is, and we need to be sure that the, with those with whom we work and who supervise us also understand what our scope of practice is. Um, if, if a child you know, does, does not have an, an identified speech and or language disorder, we should not be seeing that child for services. Um, and, and what I used to hear, and maybe this comports, Jeff, with what you've heard, you know, I have SLP say, well, you know, I know they needed something and nobody else would see them. And so I felt like I needed mm-hmm. to, to do something. And so I would qualify them for services. Um, I mean, not only is, is that outside our scope, um, it, it's, it's, it's probably also um, illegal, um, uh, unethical, and, and controverts uh, a whole bunch of federal law and policy. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would assume this is a, um, that it can go both ways in terms of, on the one hand, I'm sure there's situations where um, ELL teachers want to get SLPs involved when there is no um, demonstrable language disorder or delay in phonology right. development, and then the other side where they feel like they need to do it all themselves. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and so I think our role is, is consultative, right? And so yeah. there's nothing that should or would preclude us from consulting to the ESL instructor or the ELL teacher to, to say, look, here's our, our nexus of, of expertise. Here's how we as an SLP who are well-grounded in, in linguistics and language development and disorders and, and differential diagnosis and difference versus disorder – can help you understand the, the child before you. But we cannot, in good conscience and, and following the law, identify a child as disordered if, in fact, we don't believe they have a disorder. But we absolutely can work with you and partner with you uh, to understand that child in a larger context. And I think that's where we ought to put our efforts. Yeah, no, good point. Um, I wanted to ask you in terms of an SLP maybe who has... a um, a newly identified kid in their caseload, and they're not familiar with the, um, maybe it's a language they haven't seen that often or possibly never before. Are there any websites or quick resources that'll give one an outline of the differences, uh, phonological uh, features of a language, um, dialectical differences, et cetera? Sure. Well, I mean, if, if, if you're talking, uh, so I'll start more general and then I'll, I'll be a little more specific about uh, phonology. You know, I think one, one, one great resource are the special interest groups and, and particularly uh, SIG-14, Cultural Linguistic Diversity. Um, I find that they produce uh, a number of relatively short pieces across a variety of languages that, that are easily consumed, easily digestible, um, have great references in them that would provide uh, cl- clinicians uh, an overview of an area and then resources for, for them to, to, to dig um, a little bit deeper. Also, on ASHA's site, uh, uh, the, the Multicultural Resources site and multi- the Office of Multicultural Affairs also has uh, the, those resources that, that clinicians can, can look to. And so for, for phonology specifically, there, there are probably two 
books that, that I would point listeners towards, and they are um, books that were both edited by Sharon McLeod, um, who's at Charles Sturt University in uh, Australia. One is called Multilingual Aspects of Speech Sound Disorders in, in Children, mm-hmm. and it's edited um, by her and, and me. And the second is The International Guide to Speech Acquisition. And that's also edited by Sharon McLeod, M-C-L-E-O-D. And I think those are first great first resources for any clinicians to, to go to um, to get broad overviews um, across a lot of, of different languages. So the International Guide to Speech Acquisition, for example, has relatively brief three to five page chapters on you know everything from um, Korean to Jamaican Creole uh, to Spanish. I'll have to check those out and I'll link to those. And the nice thing, by the way, about the SIG is that special interest groups, as I remember, it wasn't too long ago where if you signed up for one SIG and you would only have access to that SIG. Now Ash has released. um, So now you can check out all the SIGs and their papers. Um, You can't obviously get the CEUs for them, but you can take a look across. Read read the papers. I know. I know. Yeah. And that's why... You know, I always tell clinicians, I, I, I know some have, have issues with, with ASHA um, notwithstanding, but it, it is well worth your, your membership to have access to the journals, to have access to all the newsletters from, from all the SIGs. And so there are other ones like SIG1, Language Learning and Education. Uh, I forget what the stuttering, the number for the stuttering one is. And again, yeah. they also are doing pieces on non-English languages, bilinguals, and, and multilinguals. And they're all uh, a great resource, along with, obviously, the research that's, that's posted in the, the peer-reviewed journals. You know, one of the things I always say at, at commencement and when I'm talking to, to students and, and clinicians, too, but, you know, read 30 minutes a day. And, and by, by reading, I don't mean tweets and, and Facebook that, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it takes a lot every day to, to try and, and keep up with, with the field, you know, there's, there's table of contents that you can get not only from the ASHA journals, um, but also, uh, you know, journals that, that focus on, on language that are not necessarily from ASHA, well worth people's time, even if you're just looking at the abstracts and then digging down maybe with a few of the populations that, that you serve. Well, I, I'd agree. And I, I think that one of the, my overall life changes, uh, recently over the last couple of years has been this, you know, there's so many things in life to get overwhelmed by. And research is, is one of those. You know, there's too many papers. I can't read it all anyway. But you're not, not going to know everything in an instant. You're not going to know everything in a year. But you just do a little bit every day. Do what yeah, you can. And, and be comfortable with that. And I've said the same thing, at, particularly at, at conference presentations, where, you know, I literally will put up an image of a buffet table. And, and I'll say, you know, when, when I go to a buffet or, or brunch on, on Sundays, I'm not eating everything on the brunch table or the buffet table. You know, that particular Sunday, I'm picking out three or four things I really want that day. And the next time I'll come, I'll get, you know, maybe two or three different things. And, and I think, um, you know, that's how we, we ought to proceed is so a clinician might say, you know what, this year, for whatever reason, I have a lot of children who are bilingual with autism. So that's the area that I'm going to focus on for the next three or six or even even 12 months. And then next year, pick pick another focus so that, you, you know, you, you do respond to, to sort of the old cliche, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah. You know, that you're not trying to do everything all at once. 
Yeah. All right. So last question. What does the future in, uh, research in bilingualism look like? What are some exciting projects going on? What are you and your colleagues working on? Well, I, I think the uh, what, what I'm most um, heartened by is is the number and, and type of researchers who, who are focusing on, on bilinguals and multilinguals. And I'll hearken back to you know, what I was saying before, uh, which is that the research is becoming, I think, more, more nuanced. Um, and so we're not simply trying to ask a very large question is, you know, what does phonological development look like in Spanish, English, bilinguals? But we're, we're being more specific about that. You know, how do particular consonant clusters, for example, develop? Um, the, the, the second area that, that I see is a, a turn towards um, intervention um, so that clinicians are, are starting to look at um, how we can best provide intervention services to, to bilinguals. And the third is, is obviously using more up-to-date, uh, uh, significant things like ultrasound and EEG and EMG, um, fMRI. And so the whole area of, of neuroscience and bilingualism is just exploding. Ah, fascinating. Okay. Can I, can I borrow, uh, borrow you for just another minute? Are Absolutely. Okay? Right. Yes. Yes. What, what is this in the common uh, media, this idea of bilinguals have are uh, do better academically as adults in high school and et cetera. Any truth to that? Is it just a myth? Well, again, I, th- I think the the complex answer is is yes and no. And so there there, there has been a line of research uh, for a number of years, and I'll just mention one researcher who's who's spent a lot of her life looking at it, and that's um, Ellen Bialystok, who's in University of York in in Canada, um, and so. There has been the so-called cognitive advantage for for bilinguals, and the cognitive advantage spoke to certain cognitive abilities like uh, spatial reasoning, spatial spatial recognition being more advanced in bilinguals than it is in monolinguals. Now, the the advantage seems to be there um, with the caveat brought up by a number of researchers recently that well, the reason that we're seeing this advantage is more because of publication bias than it is for an, an actual, if you will, to use Lisa Men's term, psychologically responsible outcome. So if, if, there's, if there's research that has not shown a, a, a cognitive advantage for bilinguals, it tends not to be published. And so there have been researchers who've looked at students, either master's thesis or doctoral dissertations, and, and not found evidence for the so-called cognitive advantage. And so I think there's going to be a flurry of research, research to, to, to tease that out once and for all. But I, I would say at this point, it's probably unknown is the best answer. Yeah, so it's a maybe. Okay. It's, it's a maybe. It's a maybe. Yeah. All right, Brian, thank you so much. Jeff, it's, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein, for taking the time today to talk to me about bilingualism. I'm sure I could have spent many more hours talking about specific areas that um, I just feel I need to uh, broaden my horizons on. There's so much to learn, so much to know. And uh, I, I you know, again, I, I say this, bef- I've said it before, and I am, again, thankful that I do this kind of podcast to, it, it really pushes me to, uh, to extend my reach into areas that either I've neglected or I've felt um, 
uncomfortable with. I think that's the the term I would use. I think what happens, at least to me as a practicing SLP, is that I kind of look at it as like exercise where I know what parts of my body I'm strongest in. You know, for instance, in my, you know, give you in my, my uh, the thing I'm struggling with now in my exercise routine is that I've always had very weak, uh, a very weak trunk and hamstring quad strength. And I've always been much stronger in the upper body. And so it's very easy to work on what you're good at and neglect the things that you're not at, not good at. So as a youngster, when I was in, into weightlifting, I used to be very good and work harder at the bench press and completely, just completely ignore the squat, which is, which I've only found out more recently is the king of all body weight or bodybuilding exercises. So how does this relate to speech pathology? <laughs> well, and it's the same kind of thing where it's okay to embrace complexity. It's okay to not have all the answers, but it's always important to ask the questions and to keep pushing oneself. So hope that makes sense. Anyway, as with all episodes, please send all correspondence, good or bad, my way, Jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. If you're so inclined, please leave a honest review in the iTunes store. Let me know what you think of the podcast itself. I'm always open to the show suggestions, all that, etc. And thank you for listening. I will see you guys all next time.